Williams came so close to winning the World Championship in 2003 that hopes were sky high heading into the following season. But 2004 ended up being a year of total domination for Ferrari and Michael Schumacher, while Williams slumped to fourth in the Constructors' Championship as BAR and Renault emerged as best of the rest. It was a turbulent year on and off track for Williams, and one that is most remembered for what became known as the walrus nose on the FW26. Joining me, Glenn Freeman, to look back on the team's bold design that didn't pay off are a popular duo here on Bring Back V10s, Jonathan Williams and Karun Chanduk. And Jonathan, I wanted to come to you first, really just to thank you for returning to the show not long after the passing of your father, Frank. Everyone in the Bring Back V10s community has, has kept the Williams family very close in our thoughts over recent weeks. And I wanted to say that we will, of course, continue to honour everything that Frank and his team achieved for a long time to come here on the show. Thank you. Well, uh, very, very kind words and very much appreciated, for sure, not, not only by myself, but also uh, all of our family. And uh, it's going to be... Uh, a privilege to keep on going on these talks and just sort of talking a little bit more about what the achievements were for Williams, which of course to us and the family and to others means my father above above most things, which are Williams. So looking forward to uh, to just cherishing all of the memories a little bit further this way. So, but no, thank you. Thank you all. Yeah, no, it's going to be great to have you on again in the future. Obviously, the car we're talking about today wasn't one of Williams's more successful ones, but it is hugely memorable and, and a big part of the team's history. So, Jonathan, when you think back to the original Walrus Nose spec the team had at the start of the year in 2004, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Uh, I think, I think sort of a, a sort of mishmash of uh, feelings or assessments or reflections looking back I think it, I mean sometimes you I mean even though we'd sort of concluded 2003 with a lot of momentum championship caliber momentum with the FW25 there's always that debate or discussion which I imagine teams always have to have whether you go evolutionary or revolutionary and of course in hindsight Ferrari as we look back at 2004, had massively up the ante over the winter. So if we'd have been totally evolutionary over from 2003 and 25 into FW26 the following year, we may have been somewhat worse off in the championship battle than we eventually were. But then on the other hand, if we had just sort of perhaps found a common middle ground between those two, I think we did have the potential to be more successful in 2004 than we ultimately were so it's it's probably not as big a missed championship opportunity in the in the history of Williams as say the drivers championships in 1981 for Reutemann or 86 for Mansell or perhaps a clean sweep in 1991 with the first Adrian Newey car the FW14 are or maybe even not quite as uh, close as perhaps the year before was with the FW25 because we'll never know but I think probably from my point of view, it does sort of raise uh, sort of not the most direct what if questions, but it certainly raises the questions, have we have done things slightly differently? If you look at sort of when things sort of got back to normal for the last few races of the year, when Ralph was back, that new 
that sort of more conventional specification of car with the conventional nose was back. If you look at, in particular, the last two Grand Prix of 2004, the Japanese and Brazilian Grand Prix, we were pretty much across those two races on average, the fastest thing there. I mean, Ralph in Suzuka was the only person capable of going with Michael. And of course, Juan Pablo, a couple of weeks later, won the Brazilian Grand Prix on merit against all comers. And I've always thought that's a little bit of a window into had FW26 have followed a more a sort of more middle ground, not conventional, but a more middle ground sort of uh, philosophy of design and development that we may have ended up with that with that sort of uh, form sooner rather than later. But of course, it's all a big if. And as we know, if is F1 spelt backwards. But uh, I do remember asking Sam Michael that very question at some point over the winter. And of course, Sam, bless him, as well as being a technician or an engineer, a bit of a politician as well. And of course, Sam gave me the answer. Well, of course, if we'd have gone conventional nose, we'd have had the car we ended the year with at the beginning and we'd have been right there in the championship battle. Uh, We'll never know. And I think that's rather a big sort of statement without sort of evidence. But I think those last two races do certainly point to the sort of potential that was there. But on a grander scale uh, uh, compared to 2003, we again sort of didn't. Uh, unlock and therefore weren't able to take a championship during an era when we certainly had the resources and a fair degree of the talent to do so. And Karun, you tell me you've driven the FW26, so I have to ask, was it in Walrus or Standard Spec? Uh, it was in Standard Spec, so uh, yeah, it was the, uh, should we say, the the corrected version of the car. <laughs> um, a fantastic car, uh, and you know, I, I've often said this, um, you know, both on this podcast and, and in other places, that I still believe 2004 was the peak of F1 performance. You know, incredibly powerful cars, 605 kilos as opposed to the 752 from last season. Um, the peak of the tyre war, uh, you know, it, it was just an amazing era in terms of absolute F1 performance and great drivers as well. And, you know, many teams competitive, um, you know, the engine manufacturers were chucking money at development of it and uh, the cars looked great, sounded great and and the racing was, you know, I think while Ferrari dominated that year, um, it was still a great era of Formula One racing. Yeah, there was some great action that year, certainly. Before Before we get going... Remember to get your questions in for our series finale using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or email BringBackV10s at the-race.com or you can leave us a five-star podcast review on Apple Podcasts and submit a question there too. And if you'd like to get access to, well, early access to ad-free versions of the show plus exclusive bonus content between series, then sign up to the Race Members Club to get a range of special benefits check out the-race.com forward slash members club to find out more. But let's get into the Walrus Williams then. As we've discussed there, it didn't last for the whole season, but we're going to focus up to the point it was replaced rather than revisit the entire 2004 season. So Juan Pablo Montoya winning his final race for Williams at the end of the year will undoubtedly get its own episode in the future. Now, Williams went early with its car launch in the first week of January 2004, and understandably, all anyone wanted to talk about was the nose. Patrick Head explained the thinking behind the design at the launch, saying it's not a styling exercise, 
We have eliminated part of the nose above the front wing. It allows more freedom for airflow. It is to minimize drag and increase downforce. Now, interestingly, former Williams designer Jeff Willis, who by 2004 was at BAR, said he remembered it being looked into when he was still at Williams. Willis said, we had that idea a few years ago, but we didn't think it was worthwhile pursuing it because the merits of the design were so small. Last year, I heard that Williams were looking at it and maybe they have found something. It's a trade-off between increased airflow and the extra weight to, required to pass the crash test. Patrick Head did mention the crash test, saying the, the biggest work was making the design robust enough to meet the FIA's requirements. So, Jonathan, what was the feeling like inside the team about the design? Was was there a feeling that Williams had come up with something genius or was this a gamble to try and break up the Ferrari dominance? I think initially, because it was revolutionary, there was quite a bit of optimism over that winter. I mean, I remember it was perhaps with a more surprised tone, but there was certainly enthusiasm in there. But I remember when Juan Pablo first saw it in the wind tunnel, he was sort of quite taken aback, but I think also quite fascinated at the uh, at the potential and the prospects that it may be represented. But I think as we sort of talked about and has known Williams under my father and Patrick and uh, was always kept quite calm in terms of its optimism and its outlook. It was just another, it, it was probably just another sort of step along with some other sort of big things that we'd introduced or taken a gamble on technically, maybe active suspension, for example. I mean, there's probably a parallel universe where active suspension uh, didn't work and a walrus nose car did work. So we were all quite, I mean, we were interested and it was certainly something that got a lot more attention and a lot more sort of internal talking. I always thought the the interesting thing about it from an, an aesthetic point of view, which of course was your first impression of it, but an impression that built was that when you were physically with the car, the packaging of that nose was actually quite small and therefore rather elegant. But I always found, and maybe this is just me, maybe this is others, but through media, television and static photography, it seemed to magnify in size. It looked to be almost a bit of a big bulky snowplow of a thing at the front. But actually, when you were stood with it, it was rather sleek and elegant. And maybe that's just my distorted perception. But I never I was always a bit confused by that. But uh, but I think that. Yeah, but but and I think perhaps sort of the initial form. I mean, I do remember at the time there was a Formula One magazine as well as sort of uh, alongside Autosport and F1 Racing. And they were very enthused by it. I mean, they almost sort of called it the championship favorite. I mean, I think it did sort of focus attention, but I think we were sort of aware at the time that we were sort of up against, as everyone sort of has been in recent years with Mercedes, we were up against quite a powerhouse with Ferrari. And uh, I read an article in the last year or so about the 2004 Ferrari, and it said, you know the depth chart of talent you've got when James Allison is your trackside aerodynamic engineer or something. You actually know what you're up against if that's where James Allison is sort of in the pecking order of things. So I think we were still, even though we'd had a, a good 2003, we were conscious of needing to keep the next step. And it's interesting, those points that you made regarding observations by Jeff Willis in terms of the trade-off being extra weight at the front. One of the things that transformed the FW25's 
performance circa the sixth or seventh race of the year in Austria was a big move of philosophy in terms of weight distribution in the car. And an awful lot of weight was slung as far forward as possible on the 25. And those 25 front wings were absolutely loaded. I mean, they're almost a two-man job to pick up, even when detached from the nose. So I would imagine probably that was uh, sort of uh, within the think tank and the decision-making process of which way we go. That probably helped to push it uh, along a little bit if Jeff had sort of, because Jeff had been with us through until the end of 2001, sort of early 2002, I think, before departing to BAR. So if we'd had it on the drawing board, and I understand that Ferrari also had had it on the drawing board at, uh, at some stage, because one of the aerodynamicists behind this, Antonio Terzi, during this time, had moved from Ferrari to uh, Williams. And there was a little bit of a there was a little bit of talk or a little bit of rumor that I heard in the paddock that sort of Ferrari had sort of initially sort of thought that looks almost identical to something that we actually had drawn up. So it might have just been another McLaren MP44 thing on a much, much smaller scale, like somebody packing up the drawings and bringing them with them. But it never it never went anywhere. But I did hear that rumor. And Patrick also said he felt it was good for Formula One if all the cars don't look identical given that the regulations by this point weren't allowing much freedom for teams to try something different. So Karun, regardless of whether it looked good or not, and you can give us your opinion on that, how refreshing was it to see something different on the grid in 2004? Uh, I must admit, I wasn't a fan of how it looked aesthetically, um, but I did think, you know, it, it was nice to have something quirky. Uh, I liked the idea of having... It's a bit like when those... Um, you know, fairly horrendous looking mid-wings started appearing, you know, on top of the engine covers and the side pods. I think McLaren 95, if you remember, um, you know, the 95 McLaren was a was not a nice looking car. But I do remember looking at the end, that little mid-wing on the engine cover thinking, oh, I quite like that. You know, there's a bit of innovation yeah, there. And the, there's a quirk. And the X-wings as well. Things like yeah, that. Yeah, the X-wings, yeah. you know, on the Tyrrells and the Jordans, things like that. So, yeah, I, th I think it was quirky. Um but there was a lot of intrigue about whether it was going to be the tweak of the week that worked. And, uh, you know, well, as we're about to discuss, <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert. Unsurprisingly, at the launch, there was a lot of talk about Montoya, as it had been announced late in 2003 that he would be switching to McLaren for 2005. So he was set for a whole year of racing for Williams, knowing he was already going somewhere else. Montoya dismissed any doubts about his commitment, saying, I'm 100% committed, we have a realistic chance of winning the championship, and neither they nor I want to throw that away. We're here to win, and I will do whatever I can. I still see myself as a Williams driver. I don't care if I have to beat McLaren to win the title. In an article on the McLaren website in 2016, Montoya said 2004 was his most enjoyable year at Williams because there was no pressure and it was fun. So, Jonathan, what was the feeling like on the other side from the team's perspective? Did did everyone believe that Montoya would be fully committed in this final year, even though he already had his McLaren contract sealed? From memory, I would say a lot more yes than I would say no. Obviously, any team that sort of knows it's losing a driver that far in advance probably has some reservations, especially in an era of such heightened uh technical uh, sort of well in terms of the way that the cars were developed and all of the progression within that area so at some stage there were things that we sort of had to try and do 
and we had to sort of make him a part of, but not make him a part of all at the same time in terms of he was physically in the car. But as the season went on, did he actually know exactly what were all of the goings on technically and mechanically? There were some things where, where, where we sort of had to sort of just try and balance that. But I, but I think he was such, he was such a loved part of Williams. He was a real Williams driver that I think people, and he was just so easy to get along with. I think many other drivers would have made that situation a lot more uh, political, I guess is the word, but that's not in Juan Pablo's makeup. So I I don't remember it being a particularly difficult season from a, a human or social point of view with, uh, with any of the drivers. And then, as we said earlier, Ralph sort of had some difficulties with his accident and missed quite a bit of the year. And then even when Mark Genet, for example, had to jump in and do those two races, the initial two races that Ralph missed. And then we decided that Pisonia was probably the stronger option. Again, Mark was very obliging for that. So I think, yeah, I mean, I saw that comment by Juan Pablo myself, and I probably would have to agree with it. I mean, even though 2003 was the best year on paper, obviously that what this, the situation which created the question we're answering now was born in 2003 because there was a, there was quite a bit of pressure. There was a small sort of uh, incident, shall we say, around the French Grand Prix, which is fairly public by now. Probably some heated reactions from both parties and McLaren are waiting in the wings to swoop as Ron was very good at doing. And, and, then, and, so, and then there was still a championship much more on the table in 2003 than there would be in 2004. So I can see why he said that to men that probably 2003 was a lot more pressurized and uh, I can see why he was pretty relaxed for 2004. He was probably relaxed as well, to be honest with you. If, if when, I mean, you'd have to ask him again, but I would imagine in his shoes, reflecting upon that in hindsight, that it was probably, I mean, probably at, I mean, at least a quarter of the way through the season, maybe less, he knew he wasn't fighting for a championship. And therefore, one probably does relax a little bit and therefore enjoys things a little bit more. Maybe that's just me, so you'd have to ask him again. But I don't remember it being particularly difficult at all in terms of having him in there. And of course, what it meant was he wasn't at the factory much anyway. So uh, so it, it wasn't, it was really just a bit, it, it, there wasn't really too much time or space for things to go wrong. There were more important things to do when the team and the drivers were actually together at events. Frank Williams claimed in an interview with The Telegraph that Ron Dennis tried to get him to release Montoya early, offering cash and a swap with David Coulthard. But Frank said there was never a chance Williams would agree to that. Ron played it down, saying that it was a throwaway line. And Montoya weighed in on this, saying he didn't want to make the move for 2004 anyway, because he felt Williams was going to have a better season than McLaren. So Karun, just briefly looking at, at that little mini fallout, once the deal was done, would there have been any logic in everybody just cutting ties early and moving on? Yeah, I mean, I think you could see some logic in it if, if Juan Pablo wasn't motivated to stay at Williams, but by all accounts he was. And, and in the end, he probably made the better decision for himself. You know, 2004, McLaren were in all sorts of trouble when they were the, the different cars in that era between 2002, 3, 4, you know, the famous MP4 team, which I think we've done a, a separate podcast about. So there, there was all sorts of shenanigans going on there. And I imagine Juan Pablo was probably looking at it thinking, let's just wait for all of that to play out. You know, of course, when they introduced a new car mid-season in 
2004, you know, Kimi was very competitive. He took pole position at the British Grand Prix, he won at Spa, you know, so the car was right up there. Um, but it was probably a smart move waiting for 2005 when they had absolutely the fastest car uh, on the grid, although not reliable. So, yeah, in the end, I think it, it, it worked out for the best for everyone. Williams had a fair amount on its plate driver-wise anyway in the early months of 2004 because Ralph Schumacher was soon to be out of contract as well. Ralph said at the car launch that he'd want to see how the first three months of the season went and then he'd make a decision about holding more talks with Williams while Frank Williams hinted that there was an impasse over money and he said we have agreed to park the problem of money for quite some time and review it mid-season. But this story wasn't parked at all. Ralph then spoke to German newspaper Bild, hitting back against what he felt were claims from Williams that he was a money grabber. Ralph claimed he'd wanted to sign a contract extension at the end of 2003, and he was prepared to give up nearly half, those are his words, of his current salary. He said a meeting was scheduled for the Japanese Grand Prix, but Frank didn't attend the race, and then in Ralph's words, suddenly he pulled the offer. I'm very disappointed with him. You don't say something if you can't keep your word. It would be sad to leave Williams, but I can't allow myself to be treated like that. I find it hard to understand certain things that have happened these past few months. After that interview gained a lot of coverage, Ralph did try to explain himself with a, a clarification statement on his website, and he said, all I wanted to do was give an idea of what was going on and to counter press reports that implied I was only interested in money. So, Jonathan, you were there. What do you recall about Ralph's situation over that winter of 2003 into 2004? I think you, there was certainly a turning point a little bit before that. We sort of, it looks like we keep on having to refer back to 2003 in terms of, our, in terms of laying a baseline for these questions and their answers. But we... We sort of had that slightly slow start to the year. Then we massively unlocked the potential, probably for the Austrian Grand Prix. But really, most people will recall Juan Pablo's victory uh, in Monaco. Then and then and then shortly after that, back to back one two finishes led by Ralph at Nurburgring and Manicure. But then he sort of he sort of during the British Grand Prix early on, he ran wide at Cops. Uh, broke a lot of aero parts based around the floor and I think the barge boards off literally hit a curb at exactly the wrong speed and angle and I think it was almost from that point as well as obviously the injury the testing accident that the momentum seemed to drain away from his season and then so he got no and then the German Grand Prix he was blamed for it but I think he was fairly blameless uh, the first corner accident same again in Budapest, he was facing backwards on the first lap and then he was injured for Monza, had that rather scrappy race in uh, Japan. And I I think probably there was, a, and he'd also sort of, which I think was sort of coincided with Juan Pablo's arrival in the team. His partnerships with Alex Anardi and Jensen Button were far more harmonious, but I think he sort of sensed that Juan Pablo really was the Williams driver and from our point of view, he very much attached his flag to the BMW mast. He was much more present socially with BMW over race weekends in terms of where he physically was, in terms of motorhomes and how he acted with people in the uh, garage within the team. I, I don't think there was really too much animosity towards him going into what would be the final year. I think there was probably a feeling that going into year six, he probably it had probably sort of 
run its course naturally. It hadn't sort of reached the highest peaks that had come close. I mean, we'd won races together. And then he was absolutely stellar in 99 and 2001 in uh, particular, and then had a lot of peaks elsewhere. But I think even sort of before coming into 2004, there was perhaps a little bit of a feeling that, that over the latter part of 2003, Juan Pablo had sort of dramatically sort of like raised the game above Ralph in terms of the teammate battle. So I don't think there was too much sort of animosity or bad feeling towards him or too much commercial wrangling that I was aware of. I just think people probably thought this is year six, things aren't working that well. It's probably tight, probably in the interest of best parties to look around. If, if you'd actually look back at Ralph's career, you know, he was arguably one of the highest paid drivers in the history of F1. If you, if you had to draw a plot of income versus, <laughs> you know, statistical success in yeah. the sport, you'd have to say Ralph is probably at the, at the top end of that yeah. chart, you know, in terms of what he managed to negotiate. And fair play to his, his manager, you know, Willie Weber, mm. who negotiated many of those deals, not just at Williams, but, but obviously at Toyota as well. Um, and, uh, you know, he did very, very well out of Formula One. <laughs> I'm laughing a little bit at that because I'm sort of, I'm sort of not, I, I'm not a major player, but I'm sort of partly to blame. I'm sort of, well, not to blame, but uh, sort of in, in a world where I'm no longer with my father and I'm a year and a half or so uh, removed from life at Williams. I remember in sort of at, at, at the height of my involvement in like sort of doing a lot of Williams driver assessment, always being the one that was trying to look two or three steps ahead at the younger guys coming through. I remember my father giving me an assignment in the spring of 2001 where Ralph was absolutely flying. We'd had that early win in Imola. And, and around the t- and of course, then there was the stellar Canadian Grand Prix not long after that. And to be fair, despite the Brazilian Grand Prix of 2001, Juan Pablo hadn't quite sort of set the world on fire as we thought he would do based upon our expectations, how he performed in Champ Car and F3000. And my father approached me and said, I need, so we're at a contract uh, reevaluation and or extension point with Ralph. And the number is big that we're basically going to commit that he's wanting. I mean, it was serious money for the time. It'd be serious money for any of us now. But I really need to understand what what the opposition is going to be like. Are we committing to the right guy? And it was a case of looking at who else was had very strong potential in that era and what their commitments were and also trying to understand if there was a sleeper either within F1 or outside of F1. And I did this report. I sent it to my father. And then he essentially said, that's, well, I'm not just saying this because I'm here. He just said, that's really, really good work. That's answered nearly all the questions that I have. And largely based upon what you've told me, we've pulled the trigger on this Ralph Schumacher deal. And I was like, okay, so essentially this, this number is partly riding on me. And that was the number that sort of kicked in in sort of mid-2001. And uh, it was a pretty serious number. So, yes, I, I, I'm sort of in the mix on that. Unfortunately, as soon as the season started, it became pretty clear on track that Ferrari had a huge advantage over the rest of the field. Montoya qualified best of the rest in third in Australian Grand Prix, but went off at the start and managed to fall out with Ralph over a move uh, on the second lap. 
In the end, they finished fourth and fifth in Australia, but a minute down on the Ferraris. Things looked a little better in Malaysia, where Montoya was second to Michael Schumacher. Then in Bahrain, the Williamses locked out the second row of the grid, but Montoya dropped back late on with a gearbox problem, and Ralph had a clumsy race that included colliding with Takuma Sato and knocking over some of his pit crew on his way to seventh place. Already there was an air of concern from Williams. Patrick Head said, we need to get our act together pretty quickly. We have stated that our targets for this year are both championships, so we are obviously off track at the moment for those targets. If the Ferrari is truly a second a lap faster than us, purely as a car, then we need to improve the aerodynamics of our car by 10 to 12% and possibly even more to make up that gap. That's usually the sort of thing that takes a year to achieve. The general feeling from Sam Michael and the drivers was that there was no real problem with the car. It just wasn't fast enough. But Karun, after those early flyaway races at the start of the year, was it already looking like a long shot that anyone could get near this Ferrari? I think so. I mean, you know, Michael obviously dominated the first three races, but also... You know, now when we look back at, at, at that season on the whole, <laughs> you know, if all the way up till I think it was Budapest, wasn't it? At the end of August, he won every single race apart from Monaco, where he obviously crashed with Montoya in the tunnel. So, um, yeah, I mean, you, you look back and that Ferrari was an, was an astoundingly brilliant race car. They bounced back from 2003 because they were, you know, really challenged by both Raikkonen with an old car at McLaren and obviously Juan Pablo in 2003, but Ferrari really bounced back in 2004. I think from Williams's perspective, the issue was that relative to the opposition, BAR had come out with a very good car. That was arguably the best BAR across that entire era uh, of the team being in Formula One until Mercedes took over and, uh, or until it went to Braun, I should say. Uh, and and even the Renault had made a step forward. You know, Alonso won a race in 2003, but by 2004, the Renault looked actually like a car that was going to be more competitive than the Williams. So, you know, Williams went from being second or third best cars, um, most weekends probably second best car in 2003, to suddenly being the fourth best car on most weekends. Uh, and so, yeah, there was two things there. One was the actual gap to Ferrari, but the problem was these other two teams had sort of come in to fill that gap. The next most newsworthy thing that happened to Williams was when Montoya and Schumacher fell out at Imola over their first lap collision. But we'll revisit that when we do Imola 2004 in the future. So at the Spanish Grand Prix, Montoya was fastest in first qualifying. This was when we still had one shot qualifying. And he lined up second on the grid alongside Schumacher, but Ferrari dominated the race. Montoya retired with brake problems. Ralph came home sick, which he said was all the car was capable of. And this was the fifth win in a row for Michael Schumacher, which prompted Sam Michael to say Ferrari weren't going to be caught in 2004. Sam said, I don't think they are going to trip up. And even if they make a mistake, it will be with one car for one race, and then they will be back up there again. Even if they didn't develop the car from where it is now, I would be surprised if they got caught up. So, Jonathan, did that reflect perhaps a general downbeat mood inside Williams by this point of the season? I think so. I think from memory, 
by the time we got into the European season of 2004, the sort of uh, memories of 2003 and the success and the momentum and form we had seemed somewhat distant and growing sort of ever smaller in the rearview mirror. And the uh, sort of feeling of, uh, of positivity and optimism we had based upon that coming into 2004 had certainly trickled all but dry come sort of the start of the European season and the European early summer. And we knew that, as you've alluded to, that it wasn't only Ferrari that were well ahead, but we also had people to overcome in terms of BAR and Renault. So I, yes, yeah, so it, it didn't take too long as it shouldn't do for any sort of mature and adult sort of racing team to actually realize where they are. We knew that we hadn't got it right. And therefore we knew that we had some challenges ahead and therefore we had to work as hard as we can, not only to get back, but to figure out how we could get back sooner rather than later. We're going to breeze past the events of Monaco because we've covered that whole weekend in great depth already in a previous series. But after Monaco, there were big changes at Williams. Patrick Head moved into a new role with Sam Michael taking over as technical director. Patrick said he'd taken the decision to make the changes six weeks prior to the announcement. And while the original plan was to put that new structure in place at the end of the season, he then decided they should go, with, go through with it as soon as possible. Explaining the logic behind the changes, Patrick said, We intended to be fully competitive this year, and it is very clear that we are not. We still need to, we need to think about, to do a bit of restructuring uh, and to redistribute some responsibilities. I look upon this as the start of a new era. We are not making adequate progress as things are, so change is certainly necessary, and I shall be fully supporting Sam. The ideal plan for me would have been to move on at a time when Williams was strong and successful, but things didn't go to plan in 2004 and it soon became obvious that a change needed to be made sooner. Sam Michael, speaking about the 2004 car and the changes, said, We met the majority of our targets, but the targets weren't high enough. Ferrari shifted things to another level and BAR and Renault have stepped up their game. We didn't do a good enough job it's on my shoulders now to carry the ball. Karun, just briefly looking at this from the outside, did it feel like probably a sensible time for Williams to make some changes? Yeah, I mean, you'd have to say, you know, from the highs of 2003, you know, they, they should have been building on that to be back to, um, you know, becoming a regular championship contender. And it didn't happen. And you'd have to say on the whole, that era of 2000, probably three, four, maybe even five, the BMW engine was incredibly powerful. Um, you know, it was probably the benchmark in 2003. Ferrari were up there in 04, but you'd have to say, I think particularly in 2004, the team underperformed on the chassis side. And, you know, a lot of it perhaps from this, the front wing thing and, it, it sucked up a lot of resource, I imagine, by the time they course-corrected themselves, as Patrick has alluded to, um, and, and came back. And it just takes attention away from other developments. You know, the, the rate of development on a week-to-week, race-by-race basis in that era isn't, wasn't like how it is today, where pretty much every race you see new flick-ups and barge balls and bits and pieces. Uh, and it was about packages. So you imagine that they started the season on a, on a path that's, effectively a, a less competitive path um, and they've had to course correct that means they're not adding 
bits and pieces um, in terms of of actual performance. So, uh, you know, there's a, a strong period of of course correction, and somebody's got to take the blame for that. Um, you know, Patrick at the top, you know, was very good at taking taking the blame on himself, but he was never going to go to another team or, or, or shake things up. And it was about the structure underneath him that needed to be rejigged. So, yeah, I, I think I think it probably did merit some sort of a change. Back on track, by the time we got to the Nürburgring, Sam Michael said he'd already implemented changes in Williams's development programme to turn the 2004 season around. He said the changes would take four or five races to come online, while the drivers complained that the car hadn't been developed enough, so Williams was sliding down the pecking order. Jonathan, Sam said there changes were coming in four to five races, and it was six races later that the walrus nose was gone. So was that what he was talking about? And internally, did word get out a long time in advance that the nose was going to have to be ditched? In terms of the nose, I think there was always a little bit of rumour that it uh, that it wasn't going to last much longer. But I think that may have just been speculation. I think it really wasn't until between the British Grand Prix where both Juan Pablo and Mark Genet, by them being a race driver, complained of something that seems to be somewhat topical again with Williams these days, complained of the car being massively sensitive to winds, crosswinds in particular. And of course, those tusks, if you will, that got the nickname on the side, that was quite a big sort of slam panel for any crosswind. So I think the trigger was really pulled after the British Grand Prix to get ready for what turned out to be the Hungarian Grand Prix. And it was obviously rushed somewhat because I think we were still in the days of having T cars and the T car for the Hungarian Grand Prix was a walrus nose car. So there simply weren't, it was still quite rushed at that point. In terms of the first developments, I do remember going to the French Grand Prix. And one thing about the FW26 was from my point of view, having sort of the heritage role a lot more covertly then than I did of late was that I'd still have to round everything up at the end of the year. I've never known a car like the FW26 have as many A spec this, B spec that, Mark 1 this, Mark 2 that. And there was certainly a Mark 2 entire rear bodywork <laughs> section introduced for the French Grand Prix, which was literally, there's one each. And I think Juan Pablo had a crash in practice, which he kind of blamed us for sending him out in monsoon conditions when there was no need to during one of the FP sessions. So I think Manicor was the first step in Sam's plan, but it didn't focus on the nose at that point. As uh, as we've said and seen, it was Budapest where the nose came uh, to a change. And I think it was pretty much uh, the week after the British Grand Prix where the axe finally fell on that nose because both drivers said, this is just not, this is just not pleasant or easy at all. The car is just being moved around an awful lot by the crosswinds. I mean, Beckett's and Maggots in particular, where Juan Pablo and Mark were saying, you know, this is just very difficult. You know, it's just not working at all through there. And I think a great deal of that was put down to crosswinds and the nose was sort of catching quite a bit of that. I think if you're going to have a crosswind problem with a car, it's going to be uh, discovered at Silverstone, certainly. Yes. But during the <laughs> Nürburgring weekend, Frank Williams revealed BMW was pressing Williams to provide a development plan for the 2004 car. And Frank admitted, our development progress has simply not been fast enough and we are being left behind. He said BMW would receive this development plan and details of the 2005 car 
on the Wednesday after the Nürburgring race. And he added, we don't have a horsepower problem and we need to work much more successfully than we have been working. At this point in the season, Williams were fourth in the Constructors' Championship on 36 points, with Ferrari out front on 106, Renault second on 61, and BAR third in, on 46. Karun, we know that there was always tension between BMW and Williams in the time they were together. But were BMW within their rights at this stage to demand some formal communication about how Williams was going to turn this around? It's a bit of a funny one, isn't it? You know, when you're you're supposed to be one team acting together and you're asking for formal public clarification, you'd have thought, you know, sitting in the garage, you, they could have just wandered over and spoken to Frank and Patrick and asked. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's indicative, isn't it, of the the, the sort of, friction in the relationship by that stage um you know i think it's it's quite public that mario tyson by that stage had ambitions already of starting to put together their own team which wasn't that far away really you know they were only um i think we're talking about a time 18 months away from when bmw ended up on the grid um, let alone in the planning stage so i imagine it was already in his mind that hang on a second I could probably do a better job than these people. Um, and I'm sure there was an element of that coming in. The North American double header of Canada and the USA was an eventful couple of races for Williams. Ralph narrowly missed out on victory from pole position in Canada with Montoya fifth, but the celebrations were short-lived as Williams were disqualified from the race for running illegal brake ducts, which were too far away from the front wheels. Sam Michaels said it was a mistake that offered no performance gain and Frank Williams called it clumsy, but the team accepted the brake ducts did not comply with the regulations. Interestingly, Toyota were also thrown out of this race and they intended to appeal only to miss the deadline with the FIA to get their appeal lodged. But Jonathan, after what had looked like such an important mark in the road to recovery, how deflating was it for Williams to have that result taken away? Uh, certainly yes, not quite as much had there been a win, which was certainly on the cards. Uh, uh, I do remember watching that Grand Prix at, uh, at the house of quite a few Renault team members, I think, including Dino Toso, bless him, and Bradley Lord, who's now at Mercedes. I do remember watching that race, uh, there. I think that the more, and again, kind of like the more sort of time goes on, the more you can talk about this. I, I think the most... The one bigger takeaway from that event and incident was that it very quickly spread through the factory when we got back that, and you've referenced him in this discussion earlier, that Jeff Willis had been wandering the pit lane as all teams do to try and eyeball things they can see. And he'd got to the tensator barriers in front of our garage and he obviously only a year or two out of Williams, he knew most people there. And he apparently commented look, I think those brake ducts are illegal. So a rival had actually already given us a heads up that they might be illegal on the Thursday or the Friday or something. And it apparently was communicated sort of up to the, uh, uh, up to the Sam Michael level at Williams by the people on the garage floor. And it was uh, dismissed. So being honest about it, I mean, which sort of cast us in a somewhat lesser light than we, than we already are for that incident. But that, that was the biggest takeaway from that was that actually 
Jeff Willis. So I've never actually asked Jeff the question myself, but that that sort of came and spread through the factory very quickly and quite solidly in the days after that, that actually a rival had said from eyeballing it, that doesn't look right. So if somebody could do it to the naked eye, even though a very trained eye in Jeff, it was, uh, yeah, I think most people came away a little bit sort of peeved and somewhat concerned that that was part of it and it hadn't been picked up upon. Things didn't get much better uh, in the USA. In fact, they got they got a lot worse. Montoya uh, yeah. was black flagged for a bizarre piece of confusion before the start that we'll come back to another time. But the most memorable thing that happened to a Williams driver in this race, of course, was a massive accident for Ralph, who suffered a puncture 10 laps in and then uh, crashed on the banked final corner. Ralph was briefly knocked out in the incident, and when he came to, you could see on the TV footage that he was visibly dazed as the impact had shot his visor up and almost turned his crash helmet, was sort of knocked straight on his head. Ralph was taken to a hospital uh, nearby to Indianapolis and initially diagnosed with concussion and bruising to his back. He flew home after an overnight stay in hospital, and when he spoke to uh, the German press, he said he couldn't remember the accident, but he'd seen it on TV in the hospital. And he said it's as if the accident has been erased. Sam Michael, by this point, was, of course, having a baptism of fire as technical director. And uh, he said that the two bad weekends in a row put the pressure on him. Uh, Formula, he said Formula One has a tendency to throw everything at you when you are down and you can't cave in. Now... Ralph would be on the sidelines for longer than expected, and we'll come what we'll come to why in a moment, because Williams was holding off in the hope that he might be back for the French Grand Prix. Uh, but then when he went for further checks in Germany or in Europe, it was discovered he'd in fact suffered two spinal fractures. That meant he was facing potentially three months on the sidelines. And to make matters worse, Ralph got that news the day before his birthday, but his manager, Billy Weber, who you mentioned earlier, hit out of the doctors who assessed Ralph in America, telling Reuters, you really have to ask yourself what they were doing. Karun, it, it wasn't long after this that Ralph was announced as a Toyota driver for 2005, but his career would never again scale the heights that it reached at Williams. Over those years, he had three years at Toyota and he did outscore Jarno Trulli 70 points to 66. But do you think after the indie shunt and the subsequent layoff, was Ralph ever quite the same driver that he'd been before at his peak? He never really seemed that motivated at Toyota. To, um, you know, I, I agree with Jonathan. If you go back to 2001 to, to sort of 2003, even that, that window, he was, you know, there's some really big highs. Um, I always have a little bit of an asterisk against 1999 because, you know, Alex Zanardi wasn't a great benchmark. You know, he'd come back from a long time away from F1 and, and you know, it wasn't an established F1 benchmark, so to speak, although he'd had obviously tremendous success in IndyCar. So, but there's no question about it. And, but Ralph seemed to have these certain circuits, didn't he, Johnny, where you go to Imola, Magnicor, Montreal, where even Nürburgring, where he was absolutely brilliant. And then absolutely. he had other weekends where he just wouldn't turn up. So, um, <laughs> but I think... Yeah. I think by the time he got to Toyota, he he sort of, you know, checked out almost, I think. And having the big crashes, which funnily enough, he had at Indianapolis again, didn't he? A year later in the Toyota with a tire failure. He did, yeah. He had the first, he was, 
he was the first one, I guess, to flag up what would become the tyre issues. Exactly. But then I think, as we spoke earlier, I mean, he was absolutely stunning at uh, Suzuka in 2004, his like third, his second race back, I think. Was he back for China? I think he was back for the Chinese, Japanese and season, uh, uh, yeah, the last race in Brazil. But he was stunning there. So, but yeah, I mean, at Toyota, it just never quite looked to be at its highs, as high as it was with us. Ralph's absence meant there was a chance for Williams. Williams's two test drivers to shine. Mark Genet got the French and British Grand Prix, and when he underperformed, Antonio Pizzonia was called up. But another driver who was in the mix at this point was Jordan's Nick Heidfeld. According to Eddie Jordan, Williams wanted Heidfeld to take part in a shootout test with Pizzonia. Eddie had made clear months before this that he felt Williams should take Heidfeld for 2005. And if you're wondering why... EJ was so keen to get rid of his own driver. You can imagine that he was probably in line for a cut of any deal he could get for Nick. But Jordan refused to let Heidfeld take part in the shootout test, saying he was only willing to release the German if it was a test with a view to a seat for 2005, not a temporary drive that he would be out of as soon as Ralph was back. Eddie released a long statement at this time, uh, including some comments where he said, I think Williams were playing with Nick. I was not prepared to let him test as part of a shootout for the chance to have maybe two or three races with no further guarantees and all at Jordan's loss. It's not Jordan's problem that Williams are losing both their drivers this year and have employed two test drivers that they don't want to use in races. For the avoidance of doubt, Jordan is very keen to help Nick get a drive at Williams in 2005 and I will continue to work towards that. Heidfeld said it was disappointing the test didn't happen, but he said it was a good feeling to be approached by Williams. So Jonathan, at this point in 2004, how serious was Williams' interest in Heidfeld? He would get that race drive, but at this point, were Frank and Patrick perhaps not yet convinced? Uh, and I think you have to put Sam into that bracket as well. And I think Sam was quite convinced. And I think... I'm not quite sure it was purely, I mean, I, I mean, I think the word shootout has perhaps been a touch loosely put in front of the word test there. I mean, in, in these days, of course, you could pretty much run your cars whenever you wanted to. And it would have been prudent for all parties to have taken a car somewhere as quickly as possible and put him in it. And I remember Nick saying to me that while all of this was at its peak, he was sitting in the in, in the little, I mean, when you drive to Williams, then as of today, you come off the roundabout and there's like about 30, 40 yards or something of road before you get to the security gate. And there's a little lay by there. And he said he was actually sat in that lay by for quite a few hours with his phone going off left, right, and center, like, yes, no, maybe, yes, no, maybe, while it was all being argued over. I think also my sort of points with regard to how Eddie was feeling, I mean, I know because I kind of, witnessed I kind of witnessed a bit of a heated uh, discussion between him and my father at the 2000 Belgian Grand Prix which was when Sam Michael had given notice and was going to join Williams that winter we'd also ironically because he came quite a bit later we'd also I think we had a race a, a race engineer vacancy on Ralph's side of the garage sometime maybe a year before this for 2003 and the prime candidate had been Rob Smedley from Jordan to Williams and Eddie got very uh, defensive on that to the point that it didn't happen. He certainly seemed to have a little bit of a, 
a little bit of a not liking the idea of William of, of Williams taking his people, but I think there was a bit of a bit of that there. I, I don't think that we were simply just going to do a shoot. Now, some people will point to the fact that we did that often during the winter with younger guys. We put a group of younger guys together, but very different circumstances for a very different outlook, a longer term view. Uh, I I think that probably the decision makers at Grove have been around the block enough to know that you can make a call on a driver uh, based upon many, many things, including before actually physically working with him. I mean, that's how a lot of these decisions are made. I mean, a lot of drivers have, uh, have first sat in a Williams long since after they signed their first contract and you're committed. So I, I think test probably yes. Shootout test. I, I've got to be honest, I'm a bit hazy on the memories of that. And I'm, not to be arrogant I'm not usually that hazy on this kind of stuff but I could be wrong I think you know every every driver signing should involve some sort of shootout in a Jensen Button versus <laughs> way. get all the media down to her head I kind of contradicted myself and actually Williams did do shootouts yeah but I, I, that one yeah. slipped my mind well but, uh, I mean you know get yeah. all the media there have this public shootout hopefully the car won't break down as much as that one did when they were testing but and then have this announcement. Have, have Simon Cowell race engineering. Yeah, We're going to go there. You know, it'll be brilliant. We can live <laughs> podcast from the pits as the driver shootout happens. That's what they should have done with George Valtteri. <laughs> Netflix will make that happen soon, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, that's true. After Montoya and Pizzonia finished fifth and seventh in Germany, the walrus nose was no more. For the Hungarian Grand Prix, the Williams FW26 would sport a conventional nose. Frank Williams confirmed the news with a low-key line buried in the team's race preview press release, simply saying the team will present its cars in Hungary with some aero modifications, including a return to a more conventional nose and front wing solution. Sam Michael offered up a bit more, revealing that the team took the bold decision to bring the new design straight to a race weekend without testing it because they had the confidence in their wind tunnel to track correlation as Jonathan mentioned earlier, there weren't enough parts for the spare to be kitted out with the new nose. And Sam Michael admitted uh, this was part of Williams changing two or three things on the car that we now acknowledge were incorrect. We know the car would win the final race of the year in Brazil. But over the first 12 races of the year, Williams scored 47 points. And over the final six, they scored 41. So the changes made across the whole car clearly made a significant difference. Let's quickly hear from Patrick Head about the walrus nose. Patrick very kindly gave us uh, some of his time to explain how Williams ended up running it and why he thinks it didn't work. We had an arrangement where we had three aerodynamics. Uh, it was definitely a big error by me uh, in that I thought three aerodynamics would work together in the best interests of Williams, and they didn't. And one of them particularly was working in the best interest of themselves. And uh, we were told that the sort of um, short nose with the two pillars sticking forward was the bee's knees. And on the sort of hardware design side, we, we went ahead and designed that. In fact, it acted it gave very small advantage to the performance of the front wing. Um, and those two pillars sticking forward, it 
were a bit like trying to fly an aeroplane backwards. And any level of crosswind, which at that time we were unable to simulate within our wind tunnel, um, uh, any level of crosswind had a massive effect on trying to steer the car. So it was really a bit of a disaster. Um, and it took us quite a long time before we got rid of it and went to a more conventional nose, which was uh, a good step forward in the drivability of the car. And um, uh, so it was really making correction. Uh, I don't think there, were, there was general improvement. We didn't make many other major changes other than going back to a conventional nose and then small aerodynamic developments as well. But really our aerodynamic, the leadership of our aerodynamics department was a total disaster in, in 2003 um, and, and early 2004. And it was making correction on that uh, error Karun, how did you feel about seeing the walrus nose disappear? Was any part of you looking on from afar sad to see it go? Or do you think uh, its time had been and gone by this point? I think my initial feeling was, I just hope it's going to make the car more competitive. Because, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed watching Montoya race. I enjoyed, as, as a Formula One fan, it's a bit like watching Lewis these days or, or, or Max, um, you know, more recently. You just feel there's an energy. You, you, every time you watched Montoya race, you just thought something was going to happen. There was going to be a crash. There was going to be a drama. There'd be something would happen. You know, he'd, he'd ride a motocross bike on a tennis court and fall off or something. And, you know, there was always <laughs> something around him, wasn't there? Um, so the fact that the first half of the season had basically ruled him out of being a championship contender or, or a contender for race wins was was a bit disappointing as a fan to watch. Um, so that's that's all I remember thinking is I hope this propels them back into a competitive position. Jonathan, behind the scenes at Williams, was this a, a unanimous decision or were there still people who wanted to make the Walrus version better rather than just switching the nose? I think it was pretty much unanimous. I don't recall anyone certainly not to me and certainly not openly within the factory, sort of really trying to plead the case and hold out against the change. I think it was, I think it was just because people get attached to various things and they associate them. And I think probably the association of the drop in performance over that up in 2004, up to that point, the most obvious thing that people could attach it to was probably a wrong direction of, uh, design and development, which the Walrus Nose represented. And I think most people therefore were, were, were all for it. I mean, I mean, whether it's ultimate or origin architect was in that boat, I'm not too sure, but uh, I certainly don't recall any outcry or pleading over it. Sam Michael made an interesting comment not long after Hungary, where he said the fact Williams had two drivers that were moving on had made 2004 more of a struggle. Sam said, a real motivating force within the team is something we have lacked this season. Obviously, we have two drivers at the moment that are off elsewhere. And although they have tried as hard as they can, they can never completely motivate the team to succeed in the same way as two fresh guys who know they are here for a long time. Jonathan, was that, was that a view widely held inside Williams? Was there a feeling that it perhaps disrupted the team or the team suffered because... 
two drivers were on the move? I think a lot of, I think with all due respect to some people, I think that's a card that gets played quite often, either internally or by people with an external perception of a team, not just our team. Uh, I think the yardstick driver, obviously, in those days was Michael Schumacher, and neither Ralph nor Juan Pablo were anywhere near his level in terms of motivating and building and being that sort of nucleus of a team. I think Ralph Ralph was a bit of a misunderstood personality. I mean, I think he was he was actually quite shy and guarded, which some people mistook for other things. Juan Pablo, in his own way, was very motivating because he was such a lovable character. And as Karun said a moment ago, there was always that sort of uh, excitement of anticipation when Juan Pablo was behind the wheel of a racing car, especially if it was your racing car. So in its own way, that was wonderfully motivating at its peak. I mean, he was absolutely loved and cherished by people in the team, both trackside and, and at the factory. But I think in terms of in terms of did they get close to building themselves within our team in terms of how we understand Michael or, or what Michael was doing at, uh, at at Ferrari, I would I think it would be fair to say that no they both came up somewhat short of that. So I mean I wouldn't fully agree with with that, that sort of the, the driver motivation across the team across the human element of the team. There were much bigger reasons at play as to why we weren't good in 2004 than sort of uh, than sort of sulky departing drivers, which of course they weren't sulky, but that sort of is maybe what the implication was. But uh, no, there were there were bigger problems at hand and therefore bigger fish to fry than than sort of like drivers in that regard. Karun, do you think Williams suffered at all from the the upheaval on the driver front? Might they have benefited even into 2005? if they'd been able to hang on to one of the drivers, even if it was Ralph? I don't think so. I think, you know, as Johnny mentioned before, Ralph had had six seasons at the team now, and, it, you know, it, it had sort of come to a natural end, um, that relationship. So <laughs> Montoya had clearly made an emotionally charged decision in the middle of 2003 after Magni to to leave Williams. He clearly uh, was someone who was... He'd made the decision to go and then actually quite enjoyed life after he'd made that decision to go. So I don't think that really would have made a difference. It is quite clear that from sort of 2004 onwards, you know, from the the chassis side particularly, the Williams weren't at a, a level to compete against Ferrari especially. But, you know, from 2005, six onwards, you'd even argue Renault and McLaren. Uh, were clearly ahead, and I think that that was quite clear. Then they, you know, then they sort of went into that spiral where they had the uncompetitive Toyota engine for a period of time, and that knocked the team even further backward. And then, then you sort of gone into the the slippery slope until the Mercedes hybrid arrived in twenty fourteen. So really, I think it, it was an aerodynamic deficiency, which you could even argue went back. Till 1998, um, you know, in the days immediately after Newey's departure, um, but the, certainly 2004 was the beginning of the real slide because 2003 was the last time that we saw Williams a, as a genuine championship contender. I think also, as you alluded to earlier, that uh, that Mario Tyson and BMW were assessing and probably concluding it was stronger to pursue 
uh, an option elsewhere, being their own team. And of course, the year that they chose, 2006, was an entirely new engine format in the 2.4 litre v, uh, V8s coming in to replace the V10s. Certainly, to coincide, I mean, I, I love BMW. It was a great time. I personally am very fond of them, great people to work with, and they gave us some phenomenal horsepower a lot more often than not. But I think it's fair to say that after the FW26 in 2004, its successor was a drop-off, not only on chassis, but the engine that powered that car was a, was a, just a pretty sort of beginning to be slightly short of breath evolutionary engine. They obviously weren't really, you could tell that they weren't really focused on us for the future. And, and I think at the time as well, there was a little bit of a misunderstanding. If you remember sort of around this time, maybe 2003 Renault used to get those Renault cars would rocket off the line. If you were one or two grid slots ahead of a Renault car, you would just have to factor and he was coming past you. And a lot of people thought it was software, but I think there was an understanding that came in that also it's because they were, they were creating a lot more effectiveness in the engine's performance lower down the rev range. And that was certainly something that BMW for the 2005 engine was sort of being, I think, pushed on from our side and didn't really get up and go to the point that Mark Webber told me that when he qualified on the front row for the Spanish Grand Prix of 2005 and Alonso directly behind him in P4, Mark said I had the very unusual thing of Fernando coming up to me on the grid and saying, Mark, let's be honest, you know I'm overtaking you, so let's kind of try and work together. You don't get in my way because ultimately it's, it's going to cost you a lot more than, than you're going to lose anyway. And it might just let me have a better. It was Mark said it was one of those really weird things. But then I was just about to say, "On your bike, mate." And then I thought, "Fair point." And that was. And of course, I think if you watch that Grand Prix, even before our cars barely moving, Alonso's got past him. And uh, I think a, a bit of that was down to well, quite a bit of that was down to the engine. To be honest, that was certainly a Williams feeling in two thousand and five. That the whole thing had sort of dropped off in terms of uh, in terms of the overall pace, not just the chassis. Yeah, as Jonathan and Karun have, have outlined there, this really was the beginning of the, of the barren spell for Williams before the revival of 2014, with the victory in 2012, which I'm sure we'll find a reason to do a bring back V8s on in the future. But that's it for the Walrus Williams. That car was no more. That design was no more. Thanks, as always, to Karun and Jonathan for their insight and memories of a difficult year for the team, but a memorable one nonetheless and it is testament to the gamble that Williams took with that car that it's still remembered clearly by so many fans. Next time we're heading back 10 years to 1994 and the German Grand Prix where Gerhard Berger took Ferrari's first win since 1990 but as you'll hear when you listen to that episode it's fair to say there were several other big big talking points going on that weekend and we'll get into all of it in huge depth. 